If you are able to stand for our scripture reading this morning, please do so and turn your Bibles to Mark chapter 15. Mark chapter 15 will be beginning in verse 6. Now at the feast he used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them, saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. And Pilate again said to them, Then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, Crucify him. And Pilate said to them, Why? What evil has he done? But to satisfy the crowd, release for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is the governor's headquarters, and they called together the whole battalion. And they clothed him in a purple cloak, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him. And they began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews! And they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak, put his own clothes on him, and they led him out to crucify him. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha! You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others, he cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross, that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. Amen. May we give heed to the word of our God this morning. Please be seated. In what area of your life are you most likely to boast? If you only have a limited, limited amount of time to talk to somebody else that doesn't know you that well, and you want to leave a good impression, what's your go-to topic? What do you say or how do you say it to make sure that you're communicating that you're an important person, that you're worthwhile, that your opinions matter, you're worth listening to, you're a valuable contributor, you want to make sure that you're giving the impression, you know, the best impression to the other person, you try to find a way to work in your job title, make sure that they hear that. Maybe you want them to know your net worth some toys that you own, 
Maybe it's important to you that somebody else knows what your spouse's achievements are, your kids' achievements, your grandkids' achievements. Maybe it's important that somebody else has some sense of how many followers you have on social media. Maybe you fancy yourself pretty good at charm or wit, and so you're kind of looking for that angle to say something clever so that somebody else recognizes that. Or maybe you've got some past athletic accomplishments that are really, really noteworthy, and you kind of want to find a way to make sure you get that in. It boils down to this. If you have just that limited time to express to somebody else what you're most proud of, do they know, do they get to learn within those first few minutes that you're a Christian? I would say that most Christians, speculating here, most Christians, given that kind of you know, scenario that I'm creating, don't go straight for that. They don't try to work in you know, right away that they're a Christian. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not talking about you know, a formal job interview and things like that, but you're talking to somebody. You're meeting somebody for the first time. They don't know who you are, and you're kind of getting to know each other a little bit. I think that it takes more than a few minutes for some people Maybe it takes weeks, months, or longer to ever work in to somebody else that they are a Christian. To identify, to let somebody else know that, hey, by the way, I'm a Christian. Like, I am, like, capital C Christian. I believe in what the Bible has to say. Now, even among those that do more confidently communicate and more intentionally communicate to other people that they're a Christian, how few among them of an archaic, gruesome, degrading, humiliating, tortuous execution. That, we don't do that. Yet in Galatians 6, 14, This is what Paul wrote. Far be it from me to boast, except the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For Paul, the only thing worth boasting about was the cross. The only thing. Now, as to crucifixion itself, I have a couple of quotes here. One from one commentator says, "Every Every totalitarian regime needs a terror apparatus, and crucifixion was Rome's terror apparatus ad horrendum, infamous alike for its infliction of pain and ignominy on the victim. He also wrote, crucifixion was a ghastly form of death, excruciatingly painful, prolonged, and socially degrading. There's a guy named Quintilian. He was an educator, a renowned educator that was from that time. And he wrote, quote, whenever we crucify the guilty, 
The most crowded roads are chosen where the most people can see and be moved by this fear. So by design, the crucifixions were something to be seen. They were designed to have witnesses. They were designed to strike fear in every one of, the, of those that were witnessing it. So this whole experience, the whole crucifixion, crucifixion experience, was not only a punishment for the criminal that would then ultimately end with death for that convicted criminal. The process of the punishment was intentionally cruel, was intentionally public, was intentionally humiliating. Josephus, the uh, Jewish historian from that time, called it, quote, the most wretched of all ways of dying, close quote. Roman leaders, historically, were kind of renowned for being cruel, for being harsh, and even the Roman leaders would not exercise crucifixion on Roman citizens. It didn't matter what you did, how bad it was, if you were a Roman citizen, you were not going to be crucified. In fact, even if you weren't a Roman citizen, it was reserved for the lowest classes of society. We're talking slaves. And even if you're a slave or somebody in that caste at the lowest rung of all of society, you had to have committed a heinous crime, a serious crime. That's how bad crucifixion itself was. The convicted criminal experienced unrelenting torture, extraordinary humiliation over an extended period of, design, of, of time. The entire experience was designed to break the person. It was a death by exhaustion. It took place over a period of time. Now, the last time uh, that we looked, and, and Mark read it for us, the, the verses that preceded the crucifixion itself, the last time we looked at the humiliation of Christ after Pilate declared Jesus guilty, and handed him over to the soldiers. And remember, they took Jesus inside the praetorium that was inside the, the headquarters where really only the soldiers had access, and this, this systematic humiliation took place of Jesus. They took off his cloak. They put on him a, a, um, a cloak to, to make it look like he was wearing a king's robe. They forced on him a crown of thorns. They required him to hold a reed as a scepter. They took the reed back out of his hand and hit him on the, hit him on the head. They spit on him. They beat him. All of this humiliation took place inside that praetorium. They pulled his beard. They went down on their knees and cried out, Hail! king of the Jews. And remember when we looked at all that, we saw that Jesus at no time turned away. In fact, he offered up his back. He didn't turn his face from being spit on. And crucifixion, in all its abuse, in all of the torture that it contains, and as horrible as it is, 
and in all that humiliation that Jesus endured, it's still not the point. That is not the main point. There's more at play than just physical abuse and psychological cruelty. And last time we saw that what it was, that systematic humiliation that the soldiers were putting, the, uh, putting Jesus through, it was all a result of our sins, that it's the shame that our sins deserve that was being applied to Christ. And here in this account, that same shame continues. In fact, it's ramping up even more. And the facts that constitute that shame are important, but they are not the objective. Everything that took place to Jesus and the cruelty that took place to hurt him, to humiliate him, they're important, but they're not the most important thing. And I know that I spent, um, you know, I've made a lot of references to courtrooms over uh, two or three messages. And so maybe this would be the best way to go about it. I'll lay out the facts for you that are given to us right here. But the facts themselves point to something greater. The facts are these. After the soldiers are done doing that to Jesus, they put his own cloak back on him. They bring him back outside in front of the people. They're now leading Jesus away from uh, that praetorium, away from the courtroom of sorts. They're leading him outside of the city of Jerusalem. The walk itself is roughly 300 meters, they estimate, from, uh, from where he is in the city to where he's going. He's also required to carry this cross beam. 30, they estimate that it's 30 to 40 pounds. He can't carry it. It's strapped to him. Because of the prolonged abuse that he had been subjected to, he can't bear up under that weight. And instead then, the soldiers, you know, they conscript, they compel a passerby, a guy named Jew. And in fact, uh, the verse says that uh, he's a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country. He was probably coming from the country into town to celebrate the Passover. He's headed into town to actually celebrate the Passover when the soldiers themselves say, hey, you, you have to carry this man's cross. So after being forced into carrying it now, they head toward this hill outside of town. A hill, as Mark read, is called Golgotha, which is translated skull place or the place of the skull. In Latin, the word is uh, like calvaria. So basically, that's where we get the word calvary, which also means skull. So here we have this hill that's called the, the place of the skull. It may be called the place of the skull because of the shape of the hill itself. It may be called the place of the skull because um, that's where a lot of, or a lot of uh, executions took place. And so there are actually skulls there. That's up for debate. Along the way, as Jesus is proceeding towards this place of the skull, he's offered some sort of a, a wine mixture. Again, 
We don't really know if this mixture that is being offered to him is um, something the soldiers are offering him out of mockery or if it's being offered by some sympathetic uh, Jewish women. Either is a possibility to help him. But regardless, Jesus refuses the wine. And we really don't even know the entirety of why he refuses the wine. Um, For sure, we know that he is concerned with taking the full brunt of God's wrath. According to Psalm 75, Jesus was going to drink the entire cup of God's wrath and drain it down to the dregs. We also know that Jesus had a lot. Uh, He had several things he was going to say. He wanted to remain clear-headed all the way till the end. Now, on his arrival at this place of the skull, the soldiers go ahead and strip him of his clothing, further humiliate him. Everybody can see Jesus. They take his clothes. They gamble for his clothes to see who gets to keep them. And then Jesus is crucified at nine in the morning. And by crucified, not every person that was crucified, uh, or it was often people that were crucified were tied to the cross. And in Jesus's case, he was nailed to the cross. So it's 9 a.m. Jesus is crucified, nailed to the cross, the charge, put on a sign right above his head, King of the Jews. And then the the two criminals are next to him, one on his right, one on his left. Mark's account says that they're robbers, but really they're probably actual insurrectionists. If you remember, Barabbas, when he was released, he was described as a robber and a murderer, but really he was a freedom fighter and he was an insurrectionist himself. So here we have this scene of Jesus placed right in the middle with the crime of being king of the Jews, so theoretically uh, inciting insurrection, and then he's flanked by two other criminals, two other insurrectionists. So it's as if Jesus is leading the charge for this insurrection. And you can see how the Jews in creating this scene would be both making a mockery and punishing these men for what they're doing, and at the same time sending a message to anyone else that wants to see what's going on and what happens to anyone that wants to rise up against the Roman government. This is that fear that, that the Roman educator was talking about. And then at the end of the account right here, you know, we see how the religious leaders conducted themselves during this. You know, throughout the entire Gospel of Mark, We saw over and over again how they wanted to destroy Jesus. That was their goal, was to destroy Jesus. Well, they did it. They achieved their goal, and they're proud of it. Because normally, a religious leader would never be caught at a crucifixion. This is beneath them. This is horrific. This is macabre. It is gruesome. That is not somewhere that you would find a religious leader. Oh, but they're not missing this. The chief priests, the scribes, they are not missing this one. No, they want to be there to observe what's going on, and they want to participate. They're throwing their whole weight behind it. They're reviling him. 
They're shaking their heads. They're mockingly repeating Jesus' words and even threatening to believe Jesus if he'll just unpin himself from the cross and come down from the cross. Then they'll believe. So those are the facts. I mean, that's just the layout. That's how it's given to us of how these things proceeded. And while that whole account is absolutely saturated in cruelty, the cruelty of that cross is not the telos. It is not the end goal. It's real and it's important and it continues to exemplify the shame that our own sins deserve, the humiliation that our own sins deserve. But there are true but but these facts point to greater truths. And the first of them is that it fulfills the scriptures. Remember, all the way back to chapter one of Mark, Jesus was saying a phrase. Seems like in those early um, sermons, as we proceeded through Mark, it felt like I was saying it all the time. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom is at hand. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom is at hand. Christ was declaring to the people that God's prophetic plan was at work. And here, we see this culmination taking place of what Jesus was saying at the beginning of his public ministry, where he was going about and teaching and telling people, the time is at hand, the time is fulfilled, and the kingdom is at hand, and now we have Christ playing that out, and the evil one, the adversary, is playing right into his hand. Because at the evil one's perspective, just like these religious leaders, it appeared that victory was achieved. That in this barbaric execution, Satan was getting exactly what he wanted. These religious leaders were getting exactly what he wanted. Through these corrupt religious leaders, through an unethical government, and through dishonorable soldiers, by all outward appearances, Everything was going according to the evil one's plan. And it was. Except that it was also going according to our sovereign God's plan. Because in the enemy's willful exercise of brutality, he was actually fulfilling the word of God. One of the areas that, or one of the places that we see those direct correlations comes from Psalm 22. Now you've heard the facts of the account. You have it right there in black and white in front of you, what took place. Mark read it earlier, and I just listed it for you. But all the way back in Psalm 22, we have David authoring a lament. This is an agonizing lament because he is surrounded by his enemies his body is racked with great pain, and he feels like God has abandoned him. That's what he feels like at an earthly level and what he is physically dealing with 
And so he authors, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he authors Psalm 22. And in verses 17 and 18, it says, this is what David writes, I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. For my clothing, they cast lots. And then back up in verses 6 and 7 of Psalm 22, But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. That was also already submitted into the the account, the facts that we read in Mark. Then the subsequent verse right there in Psalm 22, verse 8, He trusts in Yahweh. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. We see this very quote being used by the chief priests and scribes as Jesus is hanging on the cross. In David's response to his worldly circumstance, he cried out to God about the details of his situation. This is what's going on in front of him, and he pours his heart out, and he doesn't even realize that the situation that he's in that appears so dire is completely according to God's plan, and that what is happening to him is going to happen in a greater way to his greater son, the Messiah. And wrapped in that and kind of the irony and in all of this is David was the supreme, the most noteworthy king of Israel. He was the king of the Jews. And he's crying out of this. And Jesus, in his situation, who was the promised Messiah to come from the line of David, the king of Israel, the king of the Jews, is now on the cross proclaiming these very same things in a greater way with the accusation nailed above him that says king of the Jews. Additional fulfilled prophecy or fulfilled scripture that the facts point to in the crucifixion come from Isaiah 53. Really, we could go through almost all of Isaiah 53 where it talks about the suffering servant. We know that it was the will of the father to crush him And then specifically in verse 12, it says, He poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Christ is fulfilling scripture. He's hanging on the cross. He is numbered with the transgressors, literally. There's one on that side, and there's another one on that side. I'm confident that there are dozens, scores, more of scripture that point to this very moment and to these actions. I want to take a look at Lamentations uh, chapter 2 verses 15 to 17. Again, bear in mind the, the facts that you already know about what's taking place. And the prophet Jeremiah in Lamentations 2 verses 15 to 17 It reads, All who pass along the way clap their hands at you. They hiss and wag their heads at the daughter of Jerusalem. Is this the city that was called the perfection of beauty, the joy of all the earth? 
All your enemies rail against you. They hiss. They gnash their teeth. They cry, we have swallowed her. Ah, this is the day we longed for. Now we have it. Now we see it. Yahweh has done what he purposed. He has carried out his word, which he commanded long ago. He has thrown down without pity. He has made the enemy rejoice over you and exalted the might of your foes. What is being prophesied here by Jeremiah is the judgment of Israel itself by Israel's enemies. And in this description, we have parity, we have similarity with the very thing that Jesus is experiencing while he is on the cross. All those who pass along the way clap their hands at you. They hiss and wag their heads at the daughter of Jerusalem. And in God, through Jeremiah, describing the judgment that he's going to bring on Israel by their enemies, he is also showing and foreshadowing what's going to take place when Christ is on the cross because he is going to judge his enemy, which is the religious leaders. Now this description fits the Jewish leaders serving as the enemy and exercising God's judgment on his son. Remember just a little bit earlier in in Mark, in chapter 14, when they had their little kangaroo court there before dawn, before they delivered him over to Pilate? And then in uh, 14, in verse 63, when the high priest tore his robes in his grand gesture of drama, says, and the high priest tore his garments and said, what further witnesses do you need? You have heard this blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving of death. They took up the charge of blasphemy against Christ to say that he deserved death. And now they have taken Jesus, the Son of God, and put him on a cross, and they are the ones standing in front of him and blaspheming. How God reverses all of these things to fit exactly what he said was going to happen in Scripture, in history, is something that is amazing. They are God's enemies. They are the tool of judgment, a judgment that's going to fall on themselves. True Israel is taking judgment owed to the faithless Israel so that every tribe, every tongue, every nation, the fact of the matter, he was doing that to fulfill scripture. When it says every uh, a tongue, tribe, and nation, it's talking about you. Because you're not a Jew. You are the beneficiary of Christ's sacrifice, not just in the paying of the penalty, but because he fulfilled the scripture. Because the prophets that pointed forward to what was going to happen, Jesus took up the cause. The entirety of the old covenant is in its final stages. It's all happening right here. The devil in exercising what he wanted to do through these religious leaders who also did what they wanted to do and through these soldiers who also did exactly what they wanted to do, they were placing that final 
puzzle piece into that transition from the old covenant to the new covenant. They were ensuring victory for God's family and securing their own condemnation. That can only happen if Jesus is doing this to fulfill Scripture. The second greater truth that these facts point to is that Jesus didn't just experience the humiliation. It's absolutely true, and it's the humiliation that our sins deserved and that was owed to us, but he did something else by going to the cross. He took the curse that was owed for us. So he didn't just pay the penalty and endure the shame. He specifically took the curse. Galatians 3, verses 13 to 14 Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Jesus took the curse. So what Paul was referring to was what Moses authored in Deuteronomy 21, where there is an instruction that when somebody is convicted of a crime worthy of death, and they were taken outside the camp, outside the city, if they had a city, and they were hung on a tree, God said that that body that guilty body that remained was cursed, cursed by God. And so they were instructed to take the body down and to bury the body. And Jesus, in doing this, endured that curse for us. So Jesus, as being the second Adam, reversed everything that the first Adam did. Adam, in the context of a garden fell to the temptation of the serpent and as our federal human representative cursed us to die. But Christ, in his obedience, took the curse so that for all those that repent and believe, we do not endure the penalty of sin. He took the curse. Yes, The Roman crucifixion is reprehensible in every conceivable way. It's horrible. And yes, Jesus bore up under the weight of that whole experience. The physical pain, the psychological humiliation. But of greater importance than that is that he was participating in that brand of death. That he was cursed for us. He bore a curse that was due to us. It's the crucifixion is so hideous. I, I, I almost feel like the Christian church today is a little bit numb to it. We talk about the crucifixion pretty pretty easily. Um, you know, we have the symbol of the cross. Um, on, on all kinds of things to represent that we are Christians and we point to the cross. So I think sometimes we can become a, a, maybe a little desensitized to what all took place there. 
But those from the earlier generations of Christianity knew that that kind of punishment was so gruesome, was so brutal, that they didn't want to associate Jesus with the cross. Like, that's just too shameful. Like, don't, don't do that. Don't put, don't put those two together. And in fact, there were some that tried to claim that Simon, the guy that carried the cross for Jesus, was actually the one that was crucified. It wasn't really Jesus. Like, don't, don't do that. Um, also, a heresy that, that came up out of this as well are those that wanted to believe that Jesus wasn't there in body. That like for, for, all the, for all the observers, for all of those witnesses, you wouldn't know any better, but it just looked like Jesus was there physically. But the reality is Jesus wasn't really there. You know, the, you know, there was a body up there or what appeared to be, but it really wasn't Jesus that was up there. It was like this divine smoke and mirrors thing because they're trying to separate Christ from the um, humiliation of the cross. And in fact, Paul is still dealing with this issue 25 years after it's taken place. And in 1 Corinthians 1, verses 21 to 25, it says, In the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God, pleased God, through the folly of what we preach, to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. To the outside world, this whole scenario makes absolutely no sense, which is why if you get close to it, you're like, no, I have got to separate Christ from the crucifixion. That whole scene, everything that it represents, uh, everything that he would have had to go through, and in particular the curse that uh, that, that it signifies is too too much. We have to remove Jesus from that, and we as Christians stand behind what Paul is saying in 1 Corinthians and saying that, yeah, it's foolishness to the rest of the world, but it's not to us. That's not what the cross looks like to us. The foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Christ's illegitimate conviction, the abuse of At the hands of the soldiers, his humiliating path to a gruesome death on a cross is foolishness to the world. Makes no sense whatsoever. But for the believer, we see that this is that final puzzle piece, that it is the fulfillment of the very first promise that was made in Genesis 3.15. It's all coming together that first promise that was made that bore itself out over time into more covenants that were made to Moses, to David. And these covenants were completed at the cross so that we have a better 
covenant. All previous covenants, all typologies, echoes, allusions, all result in accomplishment of this new covenant at the place of the skull. Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24. Let me read that to you. Going back to our prophet Jeremiah, chapter 9, verses 23 and 24 read, Thus says Yahweh, Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am Yahweh, who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares Yahweh. There is no better place to boast than in understanding and knowing Jesus on the cross. If someone rejects the cross, they are rejecting Christ. They go hand in hand. If they reject Christ, they reject the cross. His sacrifice on the cross did not take place so that we could live a moral life, so that we could learn a good lesson, so we would know how to turn the other cheek, so that it would improve our marriages, so that we could learn how to be a better citizen in this world. Christ went to the cross because he was fulfilling Scripture and taking the curse. You are his child, and that curse is taken on your behalf if you have repented of your sins and placed your faith in the work of Christ. The cross is the key. The cross is where the gospel is. Because when we look at the cross and we think about everything that is entailed that leads up to the cross, that made the cross possible, that made the cross necessary— then you realize that what Jesus went through and what he did and what he accomplished was because of our sin. That is repentance. And when you look at what he did and by, by following through to the very end and taking that cup of wrath down to its dregs, that we have gained in eternity and that we are clothed in his righteousness, we see the gospel of Jesus Christ. We have repentance and faith at the cross. We see sin and we see the removal of the curse. Brothers and sisters, you have to learn to boast in the cross. Hebrews 12 verses 1 and 2 says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, Let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. This is the Christian life that's being described here. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured 
the cross, despising the shame and seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus was able to fulfill scripture and to take the curse because he was not focused on what was happening then. He was thinking about, he was focused on the joy that was set before him. And when it says despising the shame, it means that he gave no regard to the shame. He didn't try to do something to maintain a shred of dignity. Will you please, Jesus wasn't going, do, doing the first thing that would communicate, will you please think better of me? I would like you to believe that I am smart. I would like you to think that I am worthwhile. I would like you to know that I am an important person. Instead, Jesus gave up his back, did not turn his faith, face. He endured the humiliation and he took the cross. And he was able to endure because he was focused on the joy that was set before him. Physical pain and psychological humiliation were of no account because he had his eyes on the throne of God. And so that will work itself out in your life in different ways. I'm confident you're enduring things in your life that other people don't know about. You might have physical pain. There might be psychological humiliation that's taking place in your life or has in the past. Those things are real. The pain is real, just as for Christ. Those things were absolutely real. But we have something greater. We, too, like Christ, can set our eyes on the joy of being in the presence of God in the future. And when we take that perspective, our closing hymn here in just a few minutes is when I survey the wondrous cross. This changes our perspective about the cross. Let me read from the hymn that we are going to sing here in just a little bit, number 186. When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count but loss and pour contempt on all my pride. Forbid it, Lord, that I should boast, save in the death of Christ my God. All the vain things that charm me most, I sacrifice them to his blood. See from his head, his hands, his feet, sorrow and love flow mingled down. Did e'er such love and sorrow meet, or thorns compose so rich a crown? Were the whole realm of nature mine, that were a present far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. Let's pray. Lord, we pray that you would help us to have a right view of the cross. May we not be ashamed of the cross. May we not be ashamed of being Christians. May we be quick to tell others of our willingness to be identified with you. Lord, forgive us of being weak. Forgive us of being fearful. Forgive us of being more interested in boasting about our physical, human, mental strengths than we are about boasting in our identity as your child. Give us courage, give us wisdom, and may we truly see the value in the cross and be quick to be identified with it. In Christ's name, amen.